Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a solo episode for you with some listener-generated topics. The topics I'm going to hit on today have to do with pacing. Specifically, the questions that we're asked had to do with like determining the right pacing strategy or like goal pace for a marathon. And I dive into some of the details around that and ways to help you kind of get a starting point and then further whittle that down so it's as precise as you can get it to be with your training leading into that race. I also touch on the same type of concept, but with a hundred mile distance. So kind of interesting because you know, I've said this in past episodes, but when you start stretching these events out quite long, you get to a scenario in which you may be running further than you did at any point in training on race day, which makes it sometimes a little harder to both conceptualize and then accurately predict the best pace for you. So I try to do the best I could in terms of helping you kind of get off the the starting block, so to speak, with, uh, with the right plan in mind with those questions. Uh, another other questions included tapering. Like what's a specifically the question was about hundred miles. Uh, so I talked about tapering a little bit and kind of the way I like to do that and the way I kind of break that down. And then finally, the most important workout for a hundred mile race. So we dive into those kind of four questions or four topics for this episode. Uh, also for those of you following along or interested on the show Patreon page right now, I have a few episodes loaded up. One is with Matt Kerr, who is the most recent 30 to 34 year old age group world triathlon champion. He follows a low carbohydrate diet and has through the roof fat oxidation rates because of it, that combined with his training, obviously, uh, but he, I wanted to talk to him, just find out kind of how he structured things and, and how he's kind of like behaving around his nutrition and things like that, especially while he's, you know, following a more periodized training plan. I found it kind of interesting because there's definitely some crossovers with Ironman triathlon and ultra marathon, because they both tend to be quite lengthy events, you know, going, getting well past like a few hours in, in most cases. So, um, you're, you're looking at like somewhat comparable from an intensity standpoint to some degree. So I always like to kind of see what those guys are doing when they have, have an approach that's working for them. Also up on the show, Patreon page is my interview with Kara Collier. Kara's a dietitian and is very knowledgeable when it comes to glucose uh, response to foods and things like that. And is very much dialed in when it comes to kind of the more recent technology on continuous glucose monitors. So we went through a whole bunch of questions and she was incredibly efficient. So we got through a lot uh, of really interesting stuff. Uh, that one's up on the show Patreon page as well. Uh, yeah, I'm currently going to be putting up shortly interview with Alan Argon. I'm going to be recording with him this week. So that one should be up there pretty quickly. And uh, some questions I want to talk to Alan about is just his new book, uh, around kind of like the different ways to personalize your nutrition. Uh, some other topics that I find interesting, I think Alan will have a, some interesting takes on are like protein, the way we maybe want to individualize our protein needs, prioritize certain things. Uh, fiber is another question I want to ask him about. And then ultimately just get into his view of how to properly create 
a personal nutrition plan that is going to be lasting, meaning that you can consistently stick to it forever. And I think that's usually the magic bullet for people finding a way of eating that they find intuitive enough, uh, enjoyable enough that they can kind of stick to it and be happy with it. And I find that's usually the path to success for most people. And I think Alan's got some interesting takes on that. So I'll be asking him a lot of stuff around that as well. Um, if, uh, if you want to support the show, Patreon, getting those early release and ad-free episodes is one way to do that. You can access the show's Patreon page by heading over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. There's also other ways to support the show over there, including liking, subscribing, and sharing podcast episodes that you enjoy. If you find an episode or like the show in general, letting your friends and family know about it is great for helping me grow the show, as well as leaving a review on your favorite podcast listening platform. All right, folks. Uh, finally, one other just reminder, if you're interested in kind of checking out specific topics within an episode, I have been trying to more consistently chop up the episodes into individual topics or small clips. They usually range from as short as a couple minutes up to like maybe 10, 12 minutes in length, but they try to tie in one specific thing we talked about or one question and answer I had with a guest or topic that I addressed. So if you're kind of looking for like quick snapshots of the, of the show, the show's YouTube channel is a great spot to find that. If you want, if you want that sort of, that sort of content, uh, you can link over to the show's YouTube page by heading over to zackbitter.com forward slash HPO click on the episode you like there. And with that will be all the details of the episode, both audio, video, and Patreon option will be linked to that. And finally, if one of the show sponsors has a product you'd like to try out, that is a great way to support the show as well. You can do that by letting them know you came to them through this episode by clicking through the links provided or using the promo codes provided. If you want to check out the, the products and brands that run ads on the Human Performance Outliers podcast, you can do that by heading over to zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. You can also find links to the individual episode sponsors in the show notes. And this episode's sponsors include Gooder Sunglasses and Inside Trackers Blood Panel Testing. Inside Tracker offers a wide range of blood tests. You can go into a lab or check out one of their home kits. Either way, you can take a look inside and see the areas you are thriving and spots to work on. The biggest question with this type of info is often, well, what do I do next with this information? You have the data, but what's the plan? Inside Tracker will give you suggestions and help you personalize their nutrition and lifestyle to optimize. Since people age at different speeds, some faster, some slower, this means the date that marks your birthday may not represent your body's actual biological age. That's why Inside Tracker developed Inner Age 2.0. This is a proprietary AI-driven platform that reveals how your body is aging and provides a personalized science-backed action plan to help you get younger from the inside out. At Inside Tracker, they believe that your best self isn't behind you, it's within you. By looking at the science of your health and longevity, you can discover the personalized path to living healthier and longer. So if you want to continue doing the activities you love with the people you love for the rest of your life, 
checking inside with inside tracker is an option for you for a limited time human performance outliers listeners can get 20 percent off your entire inside tracker order including interage 2.0 just visit insidetracker.com forward slash hpo podcast that's insidetracker.com forward slash hpo podcast that link is in the show notes as well as the show sponsor page at zachbetter.com forward slash hpo sponsors Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses for anyone. Gooder sunglasses are lightweight, comfortable, don't move when you move, all for only $25. No slip, no bounce, all polarized and all fun. All Gooders are 100% UV protective and 100% polarized. Whether you are running, cycling, hiking, or simply spending some time in the sun, Gooder will stay snug and comfy. Gooder is running free U.S. shipping on all orders over $50.00. A 30-day free return, one-year warranty, 100% carbon neutral, and 1% for the planet. So go to gooder.com, that's G-O-O-D-R.com forward slash HPO to get 15% off your entire order when you use the code HPO at checkout. Links for that will be in the show notes as well as at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a solo episode for you where I'm going to dive into some questions that listeners submitted. Some of these questions I turn into topics more or less because I see like some follow-up questions or an opportunity to dive a little bit deeper maybe than the question was intended for and hopefully address some things that more people are wondering about as well as what the original question was. So for today's episode, we have a lot around pacing for an event, tapering for an event, and then ultimately kind of preparing optimally for an event. So I sort of am skewing this topic-based episode towards kind of those final stages of preparing for a race or the back end of the training plan, perhaps in terms of like the execution with pacing and then tapering. And then ultimately the primary workouts for a given distance or event, because I think specificity is king when it comes to the peaking phase of endurance. So you're going to want to use that as kind of your guiding principle as you're getting closer to race day. But those are where we're going to go through. Uh, I'll read the questions and kind of go through them. The first one is some questions for an upcoming podcast. If they fit in doing a road marathon on November or in November, how can I calculate what my pace should be uh, for that race itself? So this is a great question. So marathon, marathon pacing is going to be something that a lot of people are going to find themselves in a moderate intensity framework. So if we think of things that are like at or below your aerobic threshold as kind of easy paces, and then things that get past your lactate threshold and up into like your VO2 max or overspeed training and things like that, we're looking at things that are like kind of in the hard category more or less. So most marathoners are going to fall somewhere between their aerobic threshold and their lactate threshold on race day. So for some extra information, for those of you unfamiliar with what those are, 
if you think of your aerobic threshold, that's an intensity that you should be able to sustain for a few hours. It's it's a pretty easy pace relative to the things that come after it. Uh, it's a pace that you can likely carry a conversation without too much trouble. You shouldn't be gasping for air after a few words at this pace. Like I said, it should feel like you can do it for quite some time. Uh, it's oftentimes going to be like at or maybe just below about 80% of your max heart rate. So it's going to, your marathon pace in a lot of cases is going to be a little bit faster than that. Then we have your lactate threshold, which for most runners is going to be an intensity that they can sustain for about 60 minutes in an all out race day type setting. So this intensity is quite a bit faster than what people are going to be able to sustain for a marathon. There are some caveats here and it comes with development. If you decide to focus very heavily on developing your aerobic threshold, that line between your aerobic threshold and your marathon pace may tighten up a fair bit. Now with proper training, you would likely develop that thoroughly and have it get quite close, but then introduce some workouts that are a little bit faster than that, closer to what your marathon potential pace is. And that specific training will likely improve your marathon pace with some work and practice and therefore further separate it from your aerobic threshold. On the other end of the spectrum, if we're looking at your lactate threshold, this kind of follows the same logic to some degree. If you really, really develop that intensity, you can find yourself in a situation where you can get closer to it with your marathon pace but that's going to be a lot more applicable for like professional Olympic caliber marathoners where we see some like low two hour marathoners be able to get in the mid 90% of their lactate threshold for two plus hours, which when you think about that intensity being on average, about a 60 minute all out effort is pretty insane to consider, but those are extremes. So let's not hyper-focus on those too much. Generally speaking, we want to think of marathon pace for a lot of folks is going to be in that moderate intensity, somewhere between their aerobic threshold and their lactate threshold. And the longer it takes you to finish the marathon, likely the closer you're going to be to your aerobic threshold and the quicker you're able to finish a marathon, likely the closer you're going to be to your lactate threshold. And that just makes sense from the duration standpoint, where if we're looking at a duration that is uh, that is fast enough that it would be like a 60 minute all out effort. The sooner you're done, the closer to that you're going to be in kind of the reverse for the, for the aerobic threshold side of that. Uh, but for getting started out, I think there are some good tools you can use to kind of ballpark these figures. So you can kind of start training and tease out over the course of your plan, exactly what you should target on race day. So one that I really like actually is based off of Jack Daniels V dot concept, or he has this chart that helps you kind of predict workout paces, race paces, when you have some data, but not all the data. So basically if you have some precedent or something in close proximity to your training plan, where, you know, like your 5k pace, your 10k pace, your half marathon pace, or some of these other distances if you have that data, you can plug that into his chart and get an idea of what they would expect you to be able to do for a marathon and then have that kind of be your starting point for your goal marathon pace. For those of you who want to access that very easily, there's actually a free app that you can get on the app store just called V.Calculator, V-D-O-T Calculator. 
can download that. You just can plug in, like I said, like your 5K PR or 5K time. And that will project approximately what you should suspect to be able to do for a marathon. Now, as you can probably imagine, the further away you get from the actual distance you're trying to predict, the less accurate it's likely going to be. So if you have like a mile time or something like that, and you're projecting that up to a marathon, it's going to get a little more dicey in terms of how accurate it is versus say, if you have recently like raced an all out half marathon, in which case you can likely get a lot closer to predicting what your marathon potential is. So I like to use those sometimes as starting points if you have them. So then you can get into your training. And then when you do get to the point where you start practicing marathon pace work, you can start playing around with how that feels and tease out if you think that's sustainable. So let's say you're targeting a three-hour marathon and you start doing some workouts where you're doing goal marathon pace for that three-hour finish for 30 minutes. If that 30 minutes feels really unsustainable for three hours early on, you can stay the course for a while and possibly see enough improvements where it becomes sustainable. But if you're getting kind of deep into your plan and your marathon pace works, marathon pace workouts are feeling like there is going to be very difficult you for to extrapolate those into the full distance. You might want to kind of re reconsider what your goal time is. Same on the other side. If it feels like this feels way too easy. I feel like I could easily do this for the length of time that I'm planning on finishing at, you know, you might want to look at that pace as a little conservative and consider possibly getting a little more aggressive or at least deciding at certain points of the race, if you should maybe speed up and hunt down a negative split or something like that on race day. But what I think works the best, once you kind of get deep into the plan, a really well-structured marathon training plan is likely going to have a long run that develops out pretty close to race distance. Now, people who are new have never run a marathon before, maybe doing a little lower volume. They're a little newer to running. They're going to be a little further away, but most marathon plans, even at the beginning stage, are going to get 14, 15, 16 mile long runs built in. So you're starting to get up there in distance and covering you know roughly two thirds of the race distance. And you can get some information from that based on how you kind of feel at the end of that. But if you want to take that another level, a well-structured marathon plan is also going to have embedded in those long runs, since those are the most specific workouts to your marathon distance in terms of time, you can embed some goal marathon pace work within that. So let's say you're new to marathons and you're targeting a build up to 16 miles in your long run as the furthest you're going to run. Your final few long runs, it may not hurt to put, say, a portion of that, maybe five or six miles at goal marathon pace. So you have an opportunity kind of near the end of that long run to shift gears to whatever that pace is and get an idea of how that pace feels when you're maybe a little more tired due to the length of the long run and any of the training that you had done prior to that, that has you at a point where you're not 100% fresh like you would be at the start on race day. Uh, if you're a little further along and you're say you've done a, multiple marathons, you're building up and you're getting up closer to say 20, 21, 22, or maybe even very close, if not at the race goal distance of 26.2 miles, you have a little bit of a bigger opportunity to practice this. You can do the same thing, but closer to race distance where 
you know, now maybe you have a scenario where you do a 22 mile long run and you had 10 miles of it at goal marathon race or something pace or something like that. If you have that information, you just need to be honest with yourself and, and think like, is this sustainable? Is this way off base? Is this something that I can't even begin to wrap my head around? You'll, you'll be able to, to kind of sense that a little bit and then use these other data points to also help kind of close the gap a little bit. So does the Jack Daniels V dot calculator have that pace? Does that pace feel uh, or match, match what you're seeing in training when you have more things pile up that match that this is something you could, you could achieve, then you're going to be closer to accurately predicting it. And what I usually tell folks too, is if you're really worried, if this is going to a point of anxiety, go with a little bit more of a conservative approach with your pacing target because if it feels super chill and you're say halfway through the marathon, you're likely much better off recognizing that then and speeding up than you are taking a little bit more of an aggressive approach and finding yourself halfway through the marathon, realizing I'm going too fast. Now I'm going to have to just really fight the wheels coming off. You're likely going to give back more time by that second that second scenario than, than you would the first scenario. And sometimes that first scenario will put you in a position where you realize what your potential is a little bit better because you're running strong into the finish. And then you have a lot better accurate of potential time in order to build off for future events. All right. So if I missed anything in that question, people want me to tease out, feel free to shoot me a note, happy to address it further or go down a different angle with that kind of same topic. Next is learning pace for your 100-mile event. So now we kind of have the same question, but now we're extrapolating out to 100 miles. So as you can probably imagine, it gets more difficult the further you get from what you're able to replicate in practice. So if we're working on, say, like a 5K plan, you can easily run and exceed that distance in training. You can do great interval workouts where you're basically doing a broken 5K with little bits of rest in there and get really close to being able to predict uh, what your potential likely is based on your fitness. When we go to the other end of the spectrum, we're up to hundred miles. You are going to be quite far from race day distance in your training on any getting st any given stimulus. There's really no scenario that I see in an optimal preparation for a hundred mile where you're running anywhere near that distance in a single training session minus you may be doing some races as tune up heading into it. So you could do something like say, I'm going to do a hundred K eight weeks out from my goal hundred mile. And that's going to be something that I kind of anchor my goals for the hundred mile off of. Uh, if we want to take a little bit of a tangent here from just a coaching philosophy standpoint, I don't see I, I wouldn't ever say goal rate or tune up races are a bad idea. I do them sometimes, but really you want to be careful with them because purely from a training standpoint, you're better off doing like say a mini training camp or some back-to-back -back longer sessions where you're hitting say hundred K over the course of two or three days versus doing it all in one shot. Simply because if you do it that way, you're going to recover quicker. You're going to get a similar training load from that broken up multi-day scenario than you will with the entire race approach setting. And that's going to likely allow you to do more overall training at goal race intensity down the road versus needing extra time to kind of bounce back from that. So the caveat there, though, obviously, is there are a lot of logistics and 
things that go into racing ultra marathons that you can only really practice on race day. Like how do I feel and behave the day before? How do I fuel the day in the morning of day before and morning of how do I navigate aid stations properly? Like, what do I do if my plan A and plan B aren't working from a nutrition standpoint? Like you can get way closer to race day setting uh, scenarios and practicing them when you're actually doing a race. So those are things you will want to consider when you're deciding kind of how to structure that training plan. But back to the pacing. So for hundred miles, what I like to do with my coaching clients and myself is when we get to the back end of the plan, say four to six weeks out from tapering, we're going to really start developing the long run and the back-to-back to long, back-to-back long run. And in some cases, maybe even a three-day kind of mini training camp where you're going to like skew a ton of your mileage for that week into that congested two to three day time frame. And what we're trying to do there is we're trying to replicate goal intensity for race day as close as possible so that your body gets better at the activity you're going to do on race day. You have some of those opportunities to practice your fueling and your hydration strategy. You have some opportunity to tease out how sustainable the pace you're doing is likely going to be if you have to do all 100 miles at once. All these things are very much worth thinking about and making a priority of documenting in your head while you're performing these back-to-back long runs and then kind of assessing afterwards whether it's realistic or not to target a specific pace in time. But since we are still extrapolating this out far, a lot of times I like to look at a range of pacing versus a very specific number like you might look at for like a marathon or something shorter where you might be down to the second or two of where you want to try to hit your mile splits. For 100 miles, you have to be a little more lenient with yourself here. So I like to take a range and within that range, I have like conservative, moderate, and aggressive. So aggressive is obviously going to be the faster pace goal. Moderate is going to be right in the middle. And then conservative is going to be the slowest you think that, uh, that you would go in and still meet your potential on race day. And then individuals are going to dictate maybe how close they get to any of those points within it. Someone who's really nervous about blowing up and wanting to make sure they have a strong finish is likely going to gravitate a little bit closer to that conservative side of that spectrum. Whereas someone who's a little bit more like, Hey, I've got this goal. I know it's aggressive, but I really just got to know, you know, they may gravitate a little bit closer to that aggressive paces, especially in the early stages of the race itself. But in terms of finding that, what I like to do is I like to take the data that we gather in those back-to-back long runs during that development phase of the long run and look at just the average paces you've sustained. So some things to consider, the more closely you can replicate race day terrain and race day weather, the better accurate your splits and training are going to reflect how you're going to feel and how you should structure those goal time paces. The, 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 the better, the more accurate it's going to be more or less is what I'm saying with that. So like if you are able to do sections of the actual course, if the weather is relatively close to what it'll be on race day, it's just going to be a little more accurate, but you got to work with what you have. So just know that um, doing this at all is going to get you closer than not. And then if you have that, that, that capability of replicating things very closely, then you're sitting in a, in a pretty good spot. Uh, what I like to do though, is I take those average paces and just look at it as I'm going to need to go a little bit slower than this, most likely on race day, at least to start. 
And then if for whatever reason, when I was doing these back-to-back long runs, I was running conservatively enough that on race day, I can hit that intensity or that pace. Great. You'll make that up in the back half. Uh, when, when you're getting closer to the finish and you're a little more capable of taking some risks and speeding up without having it backfire on you by doing it too early. But usually what I like to do is look at something in the neighborhood around 30 seconds per mile slower than that average for your aggressive target and around 60 seconds for your moderate target. And then 90 to even sometimes two minutes per mile slower for that conservative target based on the paces that you were able to average in these back-to-back long runs. I find it to be a little more accurate usually if you hyper-focus on that final day of those back-to-back long runs. So let's say, for example, when you're building up, you do three weekends where two of those weekends you do back-to-back long runs and that third weekend you actually do three. You go like Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I would like to take the average of the second on those first two weekends, and then the average of the third on that third weekend, get those numbers averaged out and then use that as your anchor to add that time to figure out your pace. I think those are going to get you within a close enough range to what you can sustain for a hundred miles on race day without being so conservative that like you're leaving a bunch of, bunch of time on the table, so to speak. And it's not so aggressive that you're likely going to blow up entirely and not finish the race either. So you have, you do want to, you know, be honest with yourself about how aggressive you want to be and then decide where you want to kind of sit in those early stages. But just like anything, when you're getting distances this long, it's totally fine to reassess on race day as things play out. So usually I say stick to the plan for sure through like 30 to 50 miles of the race itself. But if you're feeling great at that point, you can start playing around with maybe considering that you've been you've been a kind of conservative early on and start kind of inching up closer to that aggressive goal. Once you get say 70 to 80 miles in, this tends to be a real hard point for people during 100-mile races because you have a lot of miles in your legs. Your brain is getting fatigued from just the focus of being out there as long as you have but you still likely have the distance of what you did for a lot of your long runs remaining. So it's not an inconsequential amount, even though you're 70 or 80% of the way there. If you get to that point and you're feeling pretty good, uh, that is a great time to really start focusing on like being a little more aggressive when you get to that kind of two thirds of the way into the race. Uh, Cause most people are going to be, if you look at the data on ultra marathon splits, they're going to be running slower in those final miles. So if you find yourself in a position where you're running as fast or faster, uh, or even just slightly slower than what you had been doing earlier in the day, you are going to likely be moving faster than most people out there on, on, on race day. And anyone who's been in a race day setting likely can recall that if you're in a position where you're passing people and you're looking and feeling better than the average person out there, that mental advantage just builds and builds and builds. So being in that position, I oftentimes would, would, would really, really would push for, for trying to put yourself there if you can, if you can do it. All right. So let me know if I, if I should dive deeper into this specific topic, or if you have any more questions around it. Next is how to properly taper for a hundred mile event. 
So I like doing a two week taper. Usually sometimes I'll push this out to three weeks. If I feel like we hit some really big milestones and got in all those back-to-back long runs, like I just described. And I think the person would really benefit from a little bit more of a chilled, uh, three week approach leading into their taper. But oftentimes I like to go with more of a two week approach, but either way, what you're looking to do over the course of your taper is reduce your volume and intensity as you get closer to race day. Now, hundred milers are awfully unique in the sense that if you're programming it from least specific to most specific, like I do, then intensity is really a variable that has sort of teased itself out for the most part in that final preparatory stages of the race prep itself. So you don't really have to worry so much about that side of the equation because it's basically been worked out already by the time you get to your taper or that final few weeks leading into the, the taper itself. So it's really more about just reducing the overall volume. And that's going to be consistent whether you're someone who is doing these Herculean high volume training blocks, or if you're someone who is a little bit of a more of a low volume approach uh, type of person, or just simply newer to it, and you're working with where you're at, and it's just happens to be lower volume versus maybe someone else who's done it a few times. Either way, you still want to kind of just drop that, 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 that uh, volume down a bit each week leading into the race itself. The one time I would maybe do a little bit differently would be if you're, say, doing a three-week taper, in which case what I would do is I would make that third week out a little more of an aggressive taper and then then the second week. So that third week out is kind of like absorbing a lot of that training stimulus you did in that final buildup. The second week, you're getting pretty well recovered from it, so you can just inch it up a little bit more from that third week. And then that final week, whatever rest you need leading to the race day, you're going to want to take. So you're feeling fresh and ready to go on race day. But for some actual numbers, I like somewhere around 70% of, of peak volume that first week of the taper, and then 50% at most volume that week leading into the race itself. That should give you enough running so you're not feeling rusty on race day. It's not a long enough time or a big enough removal of training that you're actually losing fitness. You should find yourself in a position where you are this beautiful blend of fresh and fit and ready to run your best 100 miler on that day. All right. Let me know if I should address that question in more detail. Otherwise, our final question is, I'm training for the Havelina 100 what workouts specifically matter the most. Okay. So I love the fact that you highlighted a specific event and distance, because that's really going to be the driver of this question. Since it's a hundred miler, we want to be thinking in that final stage, that four to six weeks before taper, you should be focusing primarily on developing the things you're going to be doing on race day. And those things ultimately are going to be the most important workouts for your training plan. If you told me, if someone told me, Hey, I only have four to six weeks to train for this hundred mile or my hundred miles in four to six weeks. What should I do at that time? In almost all cases, I'm going to be telling that person within reason of what you've been doing. Like you don't want to go from no running up to like big back-to-back long runs, uh, but really, if you're doing no running and you're four to six weeks out from a hundred miler, you're looking at super suboptimal scenario to begin with. So 
I'm assuming usually if someone says that there's, they've got some foundation or some training, they just haven't decided to specifically prepare for this hundred miler yet. But really within that, that four to six weeks, those runs that are going to be most specific to race day are going to be the ones that move the needle the most because they're the most specific to what you're doing. They're going to be the most direct in terms of developing you to be able to tolerate that. Uh, and they're going to give you the most opportunities to practice what you want to be doing and should be doing on race day, whether that be your fueling, your hydration, your heat management, your pacing, uh, your skeletal muscle, your mechanics, everything that goes into doing what you're doing that day is going to be practiced much more directly by doing the activity at the intensity that you're targeting. So for the Havelina hundred, um, kind of, like I said earlier, if you can get some hot long runs in, those are going to be your money shot workouts, your cornerstone workouts for that event, because the Havelina hundred is a hundred miles and it's typically quite warm out there. So the better you can kind of prepare for that heat alongside developing that hundred mile intensity, back-to-back -back long run stuff, the better you're likely going to do on race day and the better prepared you're going to be able, you, the better prepared you're going to be, to be able to make the right decisions when you're put in a position on race day to make a decision to do one thing or another. Um, I will just add this as a little bit of a bonus for Havelina hundred. One of the most underrated things on a race like that one is going to be topical cooling. I've talked about this in some other podcasts before, but when it gets really warm like that and your body temp starts to heat up a little bit, you start to get a little bit dehydrated because there's just no way you're going to stay perfectly hydrated over the course of a full day of running, bringing that core temp down by just dousing yourself with cold ice water as often as you can is going to make a pretty big difference in you being able to manage that heat and maintain the effort and the focus that is going to be required to meet your goals there. The nice thing about the Havelina 100 is it is structured with some pretty like reasonable aid station spacing. They'll have four aid stations with the start finish being the main one, and then three more along that roughly 20 mile loop that you do over the course of that day. And I would make it a priority in your planning when you go through every one of those aid stations, uh, just to douse yourself with ice water as much as you can and make that part of your strategy and, and practice in your long runs. If you have the opportunity, if you have a chance to just say, pull up to a trailhead or a, a loop similar to the course at Havelina on a warm day and do some running, come back to that, pop open a cooler and dump some ice water or something, just experience how much of a difference that can make. That's going to be helpful too. And I know that's not technically a workout, but it's something that you can embed into the key workout sessions that you're doing to better understand how you're going to feel and what you want to do on race day itself. All right, folks, thanks for submitting those questions. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to address on the podcast, you can reach me at hpopodcast at gmail.com or shoot me a message on social media. Instagram is at Zach Bitter, Twitter's at ZBitter, Facebook at Z Bitter Endurance. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are Inside Tracker and Gooder Sunglasses. Right now you can get 20% off Inside Tracker's blood panels and their Inner Age 2.0 and 15% off Gooder Sunglasses with orders of $50 or more. Check those links out in the show notes or head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors for details. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 
Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.